This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Decreased length of stay and maximum reimbursement. Sounds great, right? Don't be so sure. Today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast, sponsored by Medically Home. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I'm sharing a conversation with Medically Home Chief Medical Officer Pippa Schulman, along with Medically Home's co-founder and CEO, Rami Karjan. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. We'll be back in a moment with Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. Hey, everybody, this is Nick Hutt from HFMA's content team, along with John Stack from our policy department. We wanted to talk about feedback HFMA has provided to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau about the use of medical payment products in healthcare settings. But first, a quick update on the topic we discussed in the last episode. As it turned out, we came very close to seeing a hefty cut to Medicaid disproportionate share hospital payments uh, actually go through. But on the last possible day before those cuts would have started, Congress passed a bill to keep the federal government funded for the next six weeks. And that bill included a postponement of the disc cut for that six-week period. Had they not gotten that done on September 30th, as they did, then the cut would have gone into effect the very next day. And that would have meant scheduled reductions of $8 billion in federal fiscal year 24 and in each of three successive fiscal years. Uh, Sean, you called it last time. You said this was going to go down to the wire. So safety net hospitals that rely on these payments can breathe a sigh of relief in the very near term. For now, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> only for now. We may very well have to do this all over again in mid-November, right? Yeah, so we'll be watching this very closely as this lags on and, and we'll be coming up in November, Nick. And things may be more chaotic this time around because the House now needs to elect a speaker. So who knows what the makeup of chamber leadership is going to be going into this mid-November deadline. And the discontent in that party from going through this chair issue. Yeah, so a lot remains to be seen. We'll be keeping tabs on all of that for you. So our main topic for this segment is medical payment products. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau back in July issued a request for information from healthcare stakeholders on use of these products, such as medical credit cards that patients can sign up for in connection with a healthcare encounter. 
if you read between the lines in the RFI, I think you get a sense that they are inclined to go ahead and in some way restrict the issuance of these types of products. But what did HFMA want to convey about these products? Yeah, we submitted our comment letter the middle of September. You know, this is a very hot topic for healthcare providers. I would say that the majority of healthcare providers, especially HFMA members and HFMA ourselves, vehemently oppose any medical products that could, you know, expose patients to exploitive terms. But not all of these products are like this. And our hospitals typically, or for the most part, don't engage in products like that. I mean, the reason our patients want these, we're finding, is to bridge that gap on high cost sharing from the plans. Cost sharing has gone up excessively, right? We've seen an increase of 72% in cost sharing since 2022. So that is pretty significant. The average annual deductible for single coverage has reached $1,562, according to Kaiser Families Foundation's 2022 Employer Health Benefits Survey. That's a lot of money for patients to shell out for cost sharing each year. So I think we need to come up with creative ideas on how to, you know, offer interest-free or very low interest cost sharing coverage for patients, given that hospitals have been tasked to be the collectors of cost sharing, co-pays, co-insurance, annual out-of-pocket deductibles that the health insurers you know, are setting for their members, for our patients. Just to give you an example, Nick, for 2023, the annual out-of-pocket for a bronze market plan is $9,100 for an individual and $18,200 for families. And that goes up in 2024 to $9,400 for single and $18,900 respectively for families. So that's a significant amount of money that folks are really trying to find a way to pay down over time. And sometimes these medical credit cards are the way to do that if the fees and the interest are in the patient's favor. Thanks for that, Sean. And, and just to let everyone know, you had a primary role in drafting our comment letter, right? It was signed by our senior vice president, Rick Gunling, but- Yeah, Rick and I worked on the letter together, Rick. Yeah. That's why you're probably the best possible person to contribute some insight on this topic, which as you said, it's very, you know, it's very nuanced. There's a lot of perspective to consider. H of May has long been focused on ensuring consumers have the best possible healthcare financial experience and don't get taken advantage of. So were we coming to it with that point of view in mind, just making sure that this works out certainly for industry stakeholders, but more than anything for consumers? Was that part of our approach in submitting these comments? And we also, you know, we echoed the arguments of many of our colleagues at other associations and other hospital systems in saying that there is a way for the government and policy folks to prevent, you know, these patients from encountering these unaffordable health care costs that they need these types of arrangements to cover. They could eliminate providers from, from collections of cost sharing amounts that are designated by health plans and put that back on the health plans to help the patients make those payment arrangements for cost sharing. They might want to consider restricting the availability of high deductible health plans to individuals who can't demonstrate the capacity to afford them and the associated cost sharing with those. I think another area that we threw out and, and feel strongly about is prohibiting the sale of health sharing ministry products and short-term limited duration plans that extend coverage beyond 90 days. So there's a lot of approaches that 
regulatory bodies can take to help address this extensive and unaffordable healthcare cost that comes from cost sharing, which a lot of these medical products are aimed to help relieve. We really encouraged regulators to take a look at some of their options as well. All right. Well, Sean, many thanks. We'll definitely be watching to see how this plays out as CFPB hopefully incorporates some of this feedback as they potentially issue uh, new regulations around the use of medical payment products. Be well, everybody. We'll talk soon. In August, I spoke with Rami Karjan and Raphael Rakowski, co-founders of Medically Home, about centering care around patients rather than around providers. Today, I'm excited to have Rami back on the podcast, along with Pippa Schulman, Medically Home's chief medical officer. They expanded on that first conversation and got to the heart of what patients really need from their care. The whole cycle of how we set up care, second, because of how we're reimbursed for care, is failing patients and making our healthcare worse, right? So you have primary care physicians who are only paid when they see patients, not for all the management they do in between, not for phone calls, not for any of that. They're so overburdened that their chronically ill patients can't get in for urgent visits and end up in the emergency department. Emergency departments are reimbursed based on how quickly they disposition or what the throughput is. They've got to get them out of that emergency room so someone else can go in there. And if you're older or you're vulnerable or you're at high risk, the easiest path for you is to be admitted to the hospital. The hospital is reimbursed turning over that bed faster. So they want to decrease length of stay as much as possible. And now what we have in this country is about 20% of patients leave the hospital and go to a SNF, where they're readmitted more than half the time. And the other half of people are going home, sometimes under-equipped for the change in their own lifestyle. People over 65 leave the hospital usually dependent for one or more activities of daily living, even if they were independent before. So we've created this cycle where the emphasis on driving down length of stay, on increasing throughput of providers has pulled the focus away from what patients actually need to heal. The other thing that's pulled the focus away from patients, I, I love that description of the cycle, Pippa, is also the silos. We have cycles and silos. So everything Pippa just described, all the different silos of healthcare that have been siloed largely because of the way that the reimbursement and the payment mechanisms are set up. You have your silo of primary care, your silo of the hospital, your silo of home health, your silo of the SNF. Those silos are reinforced by the payment mechanisms that don't consider what's best for the patient, how you work back from the care the patient needs to get. Uh, and it's very intuitive that more primary care is going to decrease the need for hospital care. More hospital care done well decreases the need for home health and SNF care. But none of that happens because of the silos that the payment mechanisms have created. Silos and cycles driven by that payment mechanism. I was talking with somebody the other day. She was talking about like, find out what the patient needs. And just like you just said, Rami, work back from there. Don't think about how it's paid and design your care around the payment because that's not what's going to be the best for the patient. But you've just raised a really interesting point, which is find out what the patient needs. How do you do that in a hospital? In a hospital where that individual comes in and the first thing we do is we strip off their clothes and give them a gown. And we put them in a strange room where they don't have control over lights and temperature and 
the window and or their roommate, or maybe they're in a hallway, they're not even in a room. How do I learn about what patients need when they're scared and vulnerable and alone in an unfamiliar environment? That's what so concerns me, this pressure to go, 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 go. Where is that supposed to happen? That's why we get so excited about providing care in the home, because as soon as a provider walks in the home, as soon as the camera goes on and the physician and the nurse are seeing into that patient's life, okay, now I can find out what the patient needs. I can find out what they have, what they love, what they do, and what they need. When people are sick, there's this whole mix of things that happens, right? They feel vulnerable. They don't want to be a burden to somebody. They almost want the attention, all the attention and no attention at the same time. I think we've probably seen that with our family members. And so sometimes deflecting a little bit and coming in from a different direction, rather than being like, how many days have you had a fever? When did you start being short of breath? Like, I don't remember that. And sometimes when you deflect, you can get back to the business of medicine by coming at it from the business of the heart. The idea that the way we pay for care makes everything Pippa just described really hard to do, even take home health. So yes, a nurse in home health is in your home, but that nurse is completely isolated, typically alone, running from patient to patient home, doesn't have access to a provider that can actually bring the care that that nurse may need, doesn't have access to other modalities of care, diagnostics, x-rays, et cetera, that they may need. It's very, very different than when a nurse is in the home, a physician is on the iPad, they're talking to the patient, they're talking together, they're bringing in the family, The other thing is the way we pay for care, isolating patients in buildings, isolates them from their families. At a very intuitive level, it makes sense that having the families involved in the care before and after, during that exacerbation is going to lead to better outcomes. All of that is just the way we pay for the care goes counter the way people want to be cared for and the way great clinicians want to care. This gets to... The heart of what we talk about a lot at HFMA, and I think, you know, part of what you're talking about here, we talk about health versus health care, or some people would say sick care versus health care. How do we get to a point where we are supporting a patient's health, not just trying to get them out of sickness or, or whatever phrasing you want to use? Well, and you know, what's really interesting from a reimbursement perspective, I think, because there is some incredibly innovative work out there by payers and healthcare systems thinking about how to support these efforts around housing and meals and transportation and support services. But they're stuck too, because so much of the time our insurance is tied to something that we may or may not have control over, whether it's our employer, whether we're paying for a supplemental benefit. And so there's this incredible churn in the insurance business. I don't have to tell your audience about that. They understand it much better than I do. And so investing in someone or a group of someone's, for them to be on someone else's product down the road, we all have to take a leap as a community, as a citizenship, right? To say, this is important to all of us. We should all cover this, even if people are moving across our plans. That's a hard sell. It's hard to understand that. But I think increasingly, I'm starting to hear some of those conversations because we have to be able to invest at every stage to make sure we're getting the full benefit because some of those interventions take time to see. And it's not the average lifespan of how someone stays on a plan. Now, CMS and Medicare, that's a little different, right? They're a much bigger animal and they're starting to think about some of these things. And that's where you start to see some of these bundled payment arrangements. But I would argue it's just not going far enough or providing enough 
security and safety for the providers in the community. Medically Home operates a decentralized care model for patients with serious or complex illnesses in partnerships with health systems, physician groups, and payers to safely provide emergency and hospital-level care for their patients at home. Medically Home provides all that is needed, including the clinical protocols, reimbursement model, platform technology, and fulfillment of the clinical services required for partners to deliver care in the home. For more information, visit medicallyhome.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional writing and research are done by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial staff. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan.